Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. And here we go, a brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut and very happy to have everybody with us as we get started uh, on the week of uh, March 21st, 2022. Uh, let me get right to the panel and introduce them because we have a lot to talk about today. Jim Galloway is my partner on the Monday show. You know that he is the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and has decades of historical knowledge about Georgia politics under his belt. Hello, Jim. How are you today? I'm doing great, despite those decades wearing on me a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you are with us uh, for sure. Uh, Adrian Jones is back with us today, professor professor of political science at Morehouse College College and uh, director of the pre-law program at Morehouse. Hi, Adrian. I'm very glad you're here today, too, uh, because you, uh, Fred Smith, and uh, Amy Steigerwald, who I'll uh, introduce in a second, all have some real insights to offer us about the uh, Supreme Court hearing underway today. But in the meantime, how are you, Adrian? I am excellent. Thank you very much. And good morning, you and everyone. Um, Amy Steigerwald is with us. Um, She is a professor of political science at Georgia State University and has devoted a great deal of her research to studying the federal courts. Hello, Amy. um, Amy, you didn't get to the Atlanta United match yesterday, but they did manage to at least get a point out of it. Apparently, it was a very exciting, exciting game. Yes, uh, we got to watch the replay, and it was terribly exciting. And instead, we watched my son's baseball team win. So, you know, win-win. Congratulations on that. Fred Smith is here, a professor of constitutional law at Emory University. How are you today, Fred? I'm wonderful, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Fred Smith, uh, you share uh, something in common uh, with Ketanji Brown-Jackson. For all I know, you may share several things uh, in common with her, but you both uh, have in your uh, background uh, clerking for a United States Supreme Court justice. Yes? Sure. Yes. So she clerked, of course, for Justice Breyer, and she clerked on the Court of Appeals, and she also did a a district court clerkship. She did the trifecta. Uh, and uh, incidentally, I also did the trifecta. <laughs> I got clerked uh, oh, at did. all three levels. Oh, okay. All right. An overachiever <laughs> joining us today, yeah, Fred Smith. Uh, um, all right. So let's do this. We've got some state po- politics I want to talk about, but because this is the first day <laughs> of the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings on Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court. Uh, I really want to start with that, and I want to really dig into it with our uh, panelists today. Um, Fred already mentioned it. Uh, She has a a fascinating background. Uh, She basically grew up in Miami, although she's a native of Washington, D.C., studied undergraduate at Harvard, went to Harvard Law, which seems to be almost a requirement for Supreme Court justices uh, that some people, by the way, uh, wish were no longer the case. Uh, Fred's already said she has uh, uh, served as a clerk for three federal judges, including Stephen uh, Breyer. She was a public defender and, among other things, uh, defended uh, clients at Guantanamo 
uh, a client at Guantanamo Bay, she would be the only justice who has ever worked as a public defender. And that, in fact, may uh, lead to some criticism, some concern among especially Republicans on the Judiciary Committee. We'll talk about all that in a minute. But all that said, Jim, I want to start with a story that I think is really an interesting example of the kind of temperament that uh, that uh, uh, Judge that Judge Brown Jackson has. She there's a story about how when she was an undergraduate at Harvard, um, students put up in, in an organization um, a Confederate flag. Uh, now this is back in the late 90s. It caused outrage among many people, including. Uh, 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 the judge herself, just an undergraduate student at the time. But while a lot of the students were talking about leaving classes, demonstrating on campus, protesting because the administration refused to order the flag down, she counseled them differently. She said, yes, we need to protest this. We need to fight this. But don't miss classes. We've got to keep our eye on the prize. And if we continue to be outstanding students, we rebut those pro-Confederacy people who would like to see, you know, white supremacy prevail. I, a fascinating story about her temperament, Jim. Right, right. There's, there, you, you, you get the, the sense that there's a, a very large streak of practicality uh, that, that, that extends throughout her career. Uh, uh, and there are a few flourishes uh, that you, that, that you that will probably uh, take note of during these four days of hearings. Uh, uh, the the most re- recent one, uh, uh, she was she was the, the she was she was she was a judge who called uh, uh, who who took up the uh, the case of uh, of Don McGahn, the the White House counsel. Uh, uh, who was who, who who Trump the Trump administration was trying to shield from testifying before Congress and and of course the the famous line her famous line was was you know presidents aren't kings uh, which and I'm, I'm sure that's going to be discussed but but getting back to your your point I mean to me that's what the, that's what the uh, her role as an assistant public defender in the federal system by the way uh, mm-hmm. uh, kind of speaks to is is that that. That that the law, you know, it, it's 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 not just about prosecutors and and independent judiciaries. It's also about de- depending uh, defending the rights of, of 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 people accused of crimes, and that's where I think we're going to be seeing Republicans take their shot because uh, they're 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 the. Uh, the, this uh, this election cycle is is shaping up to be a, kind of a, a tough on crime reprise. Um, why don't we start digging into uh, some of the things that we expect her to be asked about? And 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 th- at the top of that order, most people uh, think that uh, Republicans on the panel, particularly, are going to ask her about how race will play a role in how she decides cases. And in fact, we've had a preview of that, which I'm going to play for you now, and then we'll uh, discuss it. When she was uh, nominated to, uh, for the Court of Appeals, Circuit Court of Appeals in Washington, Senator John Cor- uh, Corcoran act- asked her, Cornyn asked her that very question. Here's that exchange, and then the panel can talk about it. What role does race play, Judge Jackson, in the kind of judge that you have been and the kind of judge you will be. Thank you, Senator. 
I don't think that race plays a role in the kind of judge that I have been and that I would be uh, in the way that you ask that question. I'm doing a certain thing when I get my cases. I'm looking at the, the, the arguments, the facts, and the law. I'm methodically and intentionally setting aside personal views, uh, any other inappropriate considerations. And I would think that um, race would be the kind of thing that would be inappropriate to inject in my evaluation of a case. I would say that uh, my different professional background than many of the Court of Appeals judges, including my uh, district court background, which will be different if I'm confirmed than many of my, my colleagues, would bring value. Uh, it's sort of like the Oliver Wendell Holmes quote that the life of the law is not logic, it's experience. And so I've experienced life uh, in, in perhaps a different way than some of my colleagues because of who I am. And that might be valuable. Uh, I hope it would be valuable if I was confirmed. Yeah, um, I wanted to let that play out, uh, Adrian, because I think it's a, a nuanced answer, isn't it? On one hand, she said, no, no, race itself isn't going to play a role. On the other hand, she didn't say it in so many words, but I have experienced life as a black person, a black child, a black woman. And so I'm aware, I'm aware perhaps of aspects of that experience that I'd bring to a court differently. Yes, Adrian. I thought she very effectively parlayed and answered the question um, sort of on both sides saying no race. Yes, race. Um, every time I listen to her speak, which I've done a lot recently, um, I just, I get very excited. <laughs> um, I think that it's actually amazing the journey of black people in the United States. I'm saying the quality of our lives is impressive compared to where we have come from. And so I am one who definitely thinks that a black perspective on the bench, uh, whether it is consistently acknowledged or not, is necessary and particularly one from a black woman. woman. I think that we do the work of engaging in precarious environments while uh, exercising diplomacy, knowledge, and information um, that allows one to create solutions um, in what can be interesting um, and alienating environments. And I think that she seems to me to be someone who comes with those kinds of traits, and I fully expect her, um, as she has done in her other court roles, to bring some of that to the Supreme Court. And some of it Fred? has to do with the fact that she's black. No, oh, Fred? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, right, of course, uh, in law, there's a fair degree of judgment calls, uh, right? I mean, in fact, you know, we don't even, and, and we, we call them judges, right? Uh, and we call the ones at the Supreme Court justices, um, right, as they are uh, making uh, making sometimes uh, tough judgment calls um, when the text is indeterminate and the history is indeterminate and there's competing reasonable uh, answers. Um, and I do think that it's in those moments uh, when just kind of, um, you know, even if judges don't want their life experience to, to have any role, um, it, that's where at the end of the day we are all, each and every one of us, um, we are uh, we are human, 
not robots. So that's not as, that's, that's, that doesn't have the same flourish as we, we are, their president's not king. Um, but that's just the reality. Uh, and I also think that she answered that question brilliantly, right? That judges do their best not to, you know, to make sure that their own biases don't influence the process, that they're looking carefully at the facts and at the law. Um, and, uh, you know, but at the same time, um, every judge is a human being uh, with life experiences. Uh, Amy, uh, it, in some ways, President Biden put this issue even more to, to the center uh, than it might otherwise have been uh, because he announced uh, that he was going to nominate an African-American woman uh, uh, to the job. And, of course, we've got Republicans who have criticized him, saying uh, this is an affirmative action choice, which they've got to be very careful about how they say. I mean, you know, I get it that they're trying to find ways to discredit this nominee because she's a Biden nominee. But um, but but the fact of the matter is he did put the issue more front and center because of announcing ahead of time that's the way he was going. He did. Um, he actually followed the same pattern that uh, then presidential nominee Ronald Reagan utilized when he said that if he won the presidency, his <clears throat> first nomination would be the first woman to the bench. And he, of course, followed through on that by nominating Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, and so a similar thing happened there because it is called descriptive representation, right? The idea that we want to have institutions that reflect what the country looks like of the people sitting on there. But I think what also came in that was really important about um, Judge Brown Jackson's response was that she actually tied the life experiences to her work experiences because she also comes to the bench. She is the first person ever nominated to have served as a public defender. She is one of the few that has uh, served as a trial court judge and not just an appellate court judge. Um, she's also one of the few to have ever, uh, much like actually her uh, mentor, Justice Breyer, to have served on the United States Sentencing Commission. And so she brings with her a wealth of professional experiences that many of the justices on the court do not have. And so I think that's the other way in which this does become a rocky thing, because she has all of this that she can point to, uh, many of which right, are just as fundamental in um, talking about where she is and also about where those experiences go. But I think I think it is difficult because it has long been true that presidents have made comments about nominees that they're going to put to the bench based upon uh, those demographic characteristics. As I said, Reagan did it actually when he was a nominee for the first uh, woman being appointed. Uh, we similarly saw actually President Trump saying that because he was replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that he would also nominate a woman to the bench. Um, we saw the first President Bush uh, do the same when he nominated Clarence Thomas to replace uh, Thurgood Marshall, saying that that similarly needed, uh, that we didn't want to take away the fact that the first a uh, black person to have ever served on the bench was passing away and to replace them there. And so that's not an uncommon thing. Jim? Uh, yeah, one, one thing I would add to, to, this, uh, to this range of, of experience, I, I suppose, uh, this qualifies is that when, when she was nominated by, by Biden, of course, she, uh, at, that, at that, uh, that White, White House ceremony, she had mentioned that she had uh, 
uh, family members, of course, who were, who were uh, members of law enforcement. She had an, an mm-hmm. uncle who had gotten uh, in Dutch with, uh, with, uh, with uh, 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 the, the nation's drug laws. Uh, so there's that. But uh, hey, Fred, if I could impose on you, uh, we're going to have a whole lot of conversation in which we are there. Everyone is going to mention that she clerked for U.S. Justice Stephen Breyer. What does that mean? What is what does a clerk, if you're clerking for a U.S. Supreme Court justice? What does that? What do you do? And what kind of leg up does does that give you uh, in in the in the selection process? Sure. So uh, you spend a year with the judge, uh, and you have a cohort of uh, three other uh, individuals who you're working with that year, um, and uh, you're really you're just you're kind of you're helping the justice fulfill their Article Three duties. So uh, when it comes to uh, the selection of cases, uh, you're writing memos that actually go to most of the justices. Uh, so, th- so these memos are shared across chambers um, where you make a recommendation about whether or not a case should be accepted. But more important than your recommendation is your analysis where you're just letting the justices know w- what their various arguments are so that they can make the best judgment. You're writing memos to your own individual justice on the actual cases where they grant uh, certiorari, you help prepare them for oral argument, and in the different chambers, um, to a varying degree across chambers, um, you're involved in the drafting of the uh, opinion themselves. Um, so you're just you're helping the justice uh, do their job for a year. Adrian, I know you want to jump in. I always think it's important for us to know that the history of the United States is a history of affirmative action. Now, after about 1970, affirmative action became associated with black people, and now it is problematic. Um, And so I think people need to be careful about calling this an affirmative action hire when no black woman has ever been able to (laughs) be nominated to the place. And when, in fact, um, her background and experience obviously qualify her um, in several categories as more qualified than those who already sit on the bench. Um, and to the fact that, um, as Dr. Smith is suggesting, you know, the training and support that you're able to do for um, a judge or justice when you are clerking, um, this means, excitedly for me, that um, Justice Jackson will be bringing clerks to the court, will be um, hanging, I'm hoping, a picture of Constance Baker Motley and other great women um, in her chambers, right? And so it introduces um, an entirely new group of people to the court, in addition to her bringing her good judgment, which um, I think you know, anyone would be hard-pressed to not uh, observe in terms of trolling her background. Um, and so, you know, if this be affirmative action, let it be, <laughs> because um, affirmative action has leaned so far <laughs> the other direction for so long um, that it's time. Uh, yeah, I was struck, uh, by, if moving in a different direction with this, uh, uh, Jim, by another aspect of this. Uh, Mitch McConnell at first suggested that he you know, could see this nomination moving forward fairly uh, handily. Um, but, but he started to uh, raise new doubts. And, and I was particularly interested in the fact that he has now said that Judge Jackson's experience as a public defender— could influence her view of the law and lead her to favor criminal defendants. Now, Jim, one of the reasons that that stands out for me is 
it's all part of the American justice system does say that people are entitled to a defense and if they can't afford a lawyer they have one appointed to that I mean these are uh, these are basic pillars of the American judicial system which McConnell now suggests may be in fact a blot on her past right and 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 this is why that that uh, that her past history as an assistant public defender in DC is 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 so important uh, I think she probably has more courtroom. I mean, in, in her courtroom experience, in a way, resembles that of Thurgood Marshall, uh, who, of course, kind of, uh, uh, of labored in labored in some some very very serious uh, uh, lower level uh, uh, lawsuits in in the nineteen forties, fifties, and sixties before he uh, made it to the court, uh, made it to the high court. Uh, but it, as I said before, I mean, this is Republicans. Have been a little bit. They have been a little bit flummoxed in how they might go about uh, uh, establishing a good argument against uh, uh, Jackson Brown, and 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 yes, uh, I think that was a signal that she, that, that Mitch McConnell was was giving to his members that this is an uh, this is this is a uh, this is this is uh, uh, an interesting field to explore. What we've the what uh, it it kind of parallels. What we've heard from Josh Hawley, the Republican senator from Missouri, who has accused uh, uh, the, the nominee of making favorable dis, uh, uh, sentencing decisions when it comes to child molesters, uh, which the, the the post has, has take the the Washington Post uh, recently took up and and kind of debunked. I think they gave it a three three Pinocchios, but I think we can we, look. You've got you've got Hawley is running for president. You've got Ted Cruz in the mix. You've got a number of uh, GOP presidential wannabes, and they will want to make their mark in these next four days. Amy? It's long been um, sort of a truism in American politics that there's this concern about being seen as soft on crime, right? We see that in going back to Nixon with his law and order campaign and running against uh, various candidates, right? That is something uh, that Democrats have long been concerned about being painted as, and I think that also has informed the nominees that we've seen, right? Again, it is super important to note that she is the first person ever to have been a public defender and one of the very few, honestly, sitting on the federal bench that has ever even defended, uh, that has had uh, criminal uh, clients who were accused of criminal uh, acts being nominated. And it's because there is this concern that you're going to see that, right? It is... um, when you look at the background of federal uh, judicial nominees, it is incredibly common for them to have served as prosecutors. It is incredibly not common for them to have been on the other side of the of the uh, the courtroom, in part because there is this question of what does it mean, right? How much are the clients that you work for representation of your own views, and leaving aside the fact that it is in fact required. Right. That you have a right, especially if you're accused of a crime, right, that you are given representation. And so that's been used against people. So I think that's actually a really important thing. And it, again, creates this sort of uncomfortable thing of suggesting that we're going to put. Now, one last thing I will say is that, for example, Senator Kennedy, who is one of the more senior members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has said, look, I actually don't think that this is a fair criticism of her because all lawyers at times represent clients that, they don't agree with or necessarily like, but that's right. their job. 
and we should particularly um, support that for criminal defendants. Uh, Adrian, uh, I want to give you a chance, and then Fred, I want to come to you, and I want to ask you to wrap up this part of the conversation in a minute. But Adrian, go ahead. I think it's important that we note that crime is off, you know, is associated with black people. Right. So even though crime is a fundamental piece of the American justice system, obviously, I mean, you know, civil lawsuits. Yes. But I mean, when you think law, you're thinking about I got arrested and something happened Um, and I need protection under the system that presumably has built for that. Um, But I would argue that since the civil rights movement and the tough on crime and the shift from um, sort of civil rights protests to, to mass incarceration, I'm saying part of it is is really tied that tightly together. So for you to have sympathy for criminals means, you know, you are pro-black people in some way. This is problematic. Um, and in my opinion, we have to open up on this idea because it's just ridiculous. And I do not think it is a fair argument to say that, you know, she's been lenient on uh, criminals and therefore is less qualified than the judge or justice sitting next to her. Fred, um, I'd love to have you give us a couple of thoughts as we wrap up this part of the conversation. But but, but I also want to put it into context. Um, we always have to remember here that um, sh- should she be confirmed, and we believe she will be, despite the fact there's going to be some Republican criticism and, and anger about uh, her nomination in the first place, <laughs> uh, she doesn't change the balance of the court at all. It remains a conservative, deeply conservative court. That's true, right? And I think that's why the levels of attack that you're seeing, you know, they're not as fever pitch uh, as they might otherwise be. If if this were right. something, if this were a nomination that was likely to change um, the the composition, um, you know, on the uh, in terms of dog whistles, um, I also wonder a little bit about a um, a cue dog whistle as well, in addition to to other dog whistles that are taking place in terms of the, the, the particular decision to, to make the child molestation charge. Um, and so, I mean, like I, I mean, I think because the, the Q conspiracy isn't something we're all generally, like, you know, interacting with on a regular basis, uh, one could miss it. But but if one is, right, then that, you know, you can imagine that sort of thing is going to kind of, you know, raise uh, raise eyebrows from, from, from that camp. Um, oh, that's, yeah. go ahead, go, go ahead. No, keep going. Yeah. Um, but but it is, I mean, so one of the things that Justice Sotomayor has said frequently, right, because she is a former prosecutor who um, who also, you know, was a partner at a law firm and kind of has a much more sort of traditional uh, background uh, when it comes to, uh, to people who end up at the court in terms of which side of uh, the line she was on in, in lawsuits. Um, but she's frequently said that, uh, that, that what she thinks the court needs a lot more of um, is people who have different practice experiences, especially public defenders. Um, it's just good to have folks who have been uh, doing different types of work uh, there, right? Literally, like sometimes it's literally so that a, a justice can ask a question or argument um, that brings, uh, that, that says, well, actually, so the way that this works is the motion is filed this way. So given that the motion is filed this way, how does this, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's really sometimes even little things like that in addition to, uh, to some of the, the bigger things. Uh-huh. 
I, I want to emphasize before we take a break, and we're late to get to it. You just said a really interesting thing that I hadn't thought about, Fred. Um, Josh Hawley, is, as, as Jim mentioned, has now opened this front saying that she's been soft on uh, uh, ki- uh, people who have been uh, convicted of child pornography, uh, uh, sexual abusers of children. And uh, it turns out most of that it has to do with her work on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. But in fact, in, in that role, she was uh, unanimously, she, uh, 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 she was agreed upon in a unanimous way across the board about sentencing recommendations for people with child pornography, whatever. But, but, but Fred added this element that I'll mention before I go to the break, saying that Holly is making a direct appeal in a subtle way to the QAnon folks out there who, of course, continue to think that Hillary Clinton and Democrats have led this uh, uh, child sex ring that needs to be uh, broken up. And I hadn't thought about it in those terms before. All right, let's get to our first break of the show. Back, we'll turn to politics in Georgia after these messages. Um, As we continue, let me uh, say that the uh, confirmation hearings uh, for for Katanji Brown-Jackson begin at uh, 11 o'clock this morning. We will carry them on GPB radio and on uh, GPB's website, gpb.org. You can uh, follow them there. Um, I'm joined today by Jim Galloway, Amy Steigerwalt, Adrian Jones, and Fred Smith. Jim, um, Jeff Duncan made his break from the Trump element of the state Republican Party a long time ago. He was on CNN frequently back uh, right after the runoff election and even before that when Trump was launching his charges about the fake Georgia election. He would go on CNN and he was kind of their go-to Republican critic of uh, the Trumpies out there. And he started what he calls GOP 2.0, an organization that he sees as the future of the Republican Party without Donald Trump. Now he's taken it another step in uh, his campaign to try to free the Republicans of Donald Trump. Just uh, days ahead of Trump's visit to Georgia, which comes this weekend, he's launched a TV ad, uh, which is appearing statewide. I don't know the size of the buy, but it's out there, and let's listen to the audio of it and then talk about it. Inflation at a 40-year high, open borders, national security threats. But some politicians would rather talk about conspiracy theories and past losses, letting liberal extremists take us in the wrong direction, a mistake our country simply can't afford. We must focus on the future and rebuild our party. But I'm not alone in believing there's a better way forward. A conservative vision is needed now more than ever. It's time for GOP 2.0. couple things about that spot, Jim. Number one, we see a picture of Stacey Abrams when he talks about the liberal uh, uh, liberal extremists out there. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's also, without mentioning him, an attack on David Perdue. Uh, uh, Duncan is a supporter of Brian Kemp's, and uh, what he's really doing is calling out Perdue for running a campaign uh, built around the Trump lies about the 2020 election, Jim. Yeah, he, he he does that, but he doesn't mention he doesn't mention Purdue by name. He flashes a couple of photos of 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 him up there. Uh, he doesn't mention Don, mention Donald Trump by name. Uh, so it, it's 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 kind of it, it kind of underlines the problem that you have. Uh, by the way, and it, and it doesn't mention Brian Kemp 
either, uh, even yeah. though he supports them. So it, it, it underlines the problem that you have within the Republican ranks of trying to wean uh, the base away from Donald Trump is, uh, I mean, you, you, you can't. Uh, you, you can't mention his name, but you have to point to a better direction. That's not a, it's not a, a, a compelling primary message, if you will. Uh, and that's where we are. We are kind of in the, we are, uh, when, when the session uh, adjourns on April 4, we're going to be into the, uh, kind of smack dab into this huge, uh, very, very volatile uh, prim- primary season on the GOP side. And and I, I don't know that a they that a moderating voice is going to be heard. Adrian, um, I, I'm interested in what Galloway said because I, I I think everything he said makes sense. I would uh, offer the possibility that maybe by not mentioning a Donald Trump by name, uh, you're trying to soften the blow and get people thinking about moving away from him. But I think maybe Galloway may have a better take on that than I do. What about you, Adrian? I mean, I think you're right. I think you're trying to be diplomatic with someone who obviously has a strong base and people continue to absorb and wield this, these lies. Um, I, for one, if they're able to pull off the GOP 2.0, would be very pleased um, to perhaps begin to be in conversations with people where we're actually talking about true facts, what's really happened in the election, and, of course, from my personal academic background, um, coming to the center and providing people with equal access, I think that's going to be very difficult if we continue with um, the Trump brand of the party. One of the things that um, I was struck by in the ad is what it was really trying to say is instead of seeing sort of other members of our own party as the enemy, let's focus on a common enemy the evil liberal Democrats, uh, the liberal extremists. As <laughs> so um, I think, but I think that that's an important point because, right, studies routinely show in political psychology that it is incredibly effective to inspire fear in people and to, um, we, we have seen that politics has become much more of sort of a battle that the other side is kind of an enemy, which is why we sort of lose this ability of sort of common ground in the middle and, um, compromise. And this is a way to say, like, hey, we're losing sight about who the sort of correct enemy should be and who we should all be gearing up against. Um, and we need to kind of refocus on that, right? At the moment, we're kind of warring with each other. We instead need to go there. And it's trying to kind of really divert people back also to the general election, because the problem is going to be that regardless of who wins the Republican primary, they still actually have to win a general election. And if they've got each of their own, their voters kind of hating the other person who might then be the the party's nominee, it's very difficult to win that general election. Um, And I think it's also trying to remind people, partly because Kemp, or sorry, Trump has suggested that Stacey Abrams would in fact be a better governor than Brian Kemp. Mm-hmm. And so this is also a subtle way to try to remind Republican voters that that may also not be a good argument, particularly if, well, they want to see conservative policies being implemented. Yeah, I mean, I, I find the message to make a lot of sense in light of uh, what the lieutenant governor has you know, has said in the past when it comes to his positioning. Um, the timing uh, 
I'm still scratching my head a little bit on, right? So we're, we're not quite at the general election moment. That's not what, what people are thinking about just yet. Uh, and so, you know, this ad in September and October, you know, it, it would seem pitch perfect. Um, and so I'm not entirely sure um, why he's doing it now, unless the idea is that he's going to kind of continue to do this throughout the year. Um, it's also interesting uh, that it's his, that it's his, he's chosen to use his voice um, I mean, there's lots of ways to do an ad, um, and the way that he did it, it sort of, um, it, even as he's leaving office, it keeps him as a relevant player, uh, and you know, and he's going to have to, frankly, find ways to do that over the next four years, while it, when he's out of office, um, in order to you know remain uh, relevant. And so, I mean, I hope that's not too skeptical of it or cynical of a take, uh, but uh, but it's my honest take. Go ahead, Amy. I was just going to say, maybe maybe to answer uh, Fred's question, I think one thing, the reason he's running it now is what he's trying to do is aid Kemp in having an overwhelming primary victory. Um, he's very much in that camp of trying to say that Purdue is kind of taking people out of the side, and so we need to focus now, right? Because basically there's a lot of arguments that the primary shouldn't even be happening, right? It's causing Kemp and the Republican Party to have to spend money that is unnecessary, and so – if you can tamp it down, if you can make it be that it becomes kind of a nuisance rather than an actual challenge, then it makes the general election that much easier. Yeah, you know, Jim, uh, just to uh, uh, go back to your starting point on this, um, actually, Duncan in this spot is really paralleling what Brian Kemp's doing in his campaign. Brian Kemp is staying completely clear of Donald Trump trying to run a campaign about his own record uh, at, without ever answering the accusations that Trump cannot stop leveling at him. And I so so this is sort of like a bank shot, it seems to me. It's Duncan uh, uh, criticizing Purdue. Uh, and in and in and in the same way that Brian Kemp is avoiding talking about Trump directly, he's kind of given that boost to Kemp without having to talk about him or Trump. Right, and and, and now that I th- I'm I'm thinking about it, uh, it I, I'm I'm not a I'm not a campaign finance lawyer. I never have been, but it by not mentioning Kemp. Uh, Oh. Uh, not mentioning Purdue, uh, I mean, he avoids any uh, any accusation that he's making a, 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 an untoward uh, campaign contribution uh, to the to the sitting governor. Okay, well, that's interesting, and I think the bigger question, and we won't uh, go go further with this today, but I think the question down the road that's going to be fascinating to watch is what is Jeff Duncan's future with the Republican Party? He's he's put all his money. He's just put all his chips in the middle of the table that there is going to be a be a future beyond Donald Trump in, you know, a near future without Donald Trump in the Republican Party. And I think that's one of the reasons it's going to be fascinating to watch him as we move forward. All right, let's get to our final break of the show and come back with more on Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We've got a few stories I'd love to have the panel take up before we run out of time today. Uh, one of them, Jim Galloway, was in this morning's AJC. Andy Peters reports this. The biggest economic development project in Georgia history is about to be built on a rural tract of land about an hour's drive east of Atlanta. Among local authorities, no one may have been more important in bringing Rivian's planned $5 billion assembly plant to the state 
than Alan Werner. And Peters goes on to point out that Werner is a public official who was uh, the head of the development authority, combined uh, uh, development authority that included the county where uh, Rivian is building, and that he owned 675 acres of property earmarked for the plant. He and his family stand to make uh, some $20 million combined uh, when the uh, land is uh, sold. So, Jim, he recused himself, the story points out, from all the formal discussions with the Development Authority of Rivian. Um, and yet, at the very least, two things. This apparent, this what appears to be a conflict, which may not be real, is one thing. And the other, it's just a little, another chink in the armor in terms of uh, the the way in which this Rivian deal was all handled, there's already enough criticism about it uh, over there in the county. Right, right, and it's, it's uh, as 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 I said off air before we began this conversation is is this is the scope of scope of 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 this this news is what's important uh, that that. Every every county in Georgia has uh, nearly every county in Georgia has a development authority, whether it's in partnership with neighboring counties or or not. And you have always had this gray area between developers and and those people who sit on on the the authorities that offer tax breaks and and other incentives to bring to bring business into 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 areas. Uh, uh, this just happens to be a very, very large one, and we should note that that uh, that Werner uh, he he resigned his chairmanship of the authority uh, yes. in August before before news broke uh, about the Rivian uh, project, but uh, when it was very, very well along. So uh, it you know it's it's uh, it's I don't want to it's a little disingenuous to say if I if I walk out of a room on a vote. I don't have any influence yeah. on 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 that vo- on that vote. Now, now uh, the the thing that's really that's important here in, in, to to this panel to a political panel is of course that David Perdue has made this a huge issue uh with yep. Brian Kemp. And and uh there's a lot of nimbyism here. And nimbyism has 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 worked before in 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 political campaigns. Uh, I mean, Roy Barnes was defeated in part by uh, by the, the opposition that Sonny Perdue uh, 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 drove up uh, to the Northern Arc, that the the the, right. the extra suburban perimeter. So this this has got this may have legs between now and May. could have like that's right. David Perdue, of course, has uh, uh, taken up with those who are opposed to letting the Rivian plant go forward. Fred, I didn't even think about it until just as we're talking. Um, But you sort of have a unique kind of perspective on things like this, being on the board of Invest Atlanta. So I'm wondering what your perspective is when you think about it in terms of a guy out there uh, who stands to profit from this. Yeah, so I won't uh, take a view on the particular facts of this case, as uh, you know, as, as, as the as the factual record continues to develop. I will say, in the abstract, however, uh, that uh, that the idea uh, that any of my fellow board members would ever vote on, participate in any discussion on, or, or, or that uh, something that was coming before us um, is is unimaginable, <laughs> frankly. Uh, and uh, and that you know when you are in a position in which you um, are holding the public's tax dollars in trust, right? Um, 
it's important to make sure not only do you not stand to benefit um, from the actions that your agency is taking, it's also important to make sure um, that there's not even an appearance of that, right? Uh, and uh, and so, you know, so those are the general principles of our state, and those are the principles that uh, me and my fellow board members uh, live by. Uh, and I'll leave it up to you, to the listeners, to decide whether or not yeah. uh, those two principles um, were adhered to uh, with the with the facts of this case. Amy, you see this uh, a parallel to this with, with uh, legislation that John Ossoff, among others, mm-hmm. are pushing right now in the Senate uh, to uh, force uh, sitting members of Congress uh, to. Uh, uh, Stay out of their stuff to get to to no longer be able to uh, trade uh, uh, stocks while they're in office. Yes, so that was obviously one of the issues that came up um, during the last Senate races. Uh, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue actually there were there were concerns about certain stocks that were traded um, and decisions being made, and we see that sort of continually coming up. And I think it's a similar thing because there is this hard problem of sort of as Jim said. Just because you walk out of the room when a certain vote is taken, if all of the other people in the room know that, A, you're the chairman of the group, and B, you own that land, how does that influence? And similarly, even if you say, well, I'm not involved with the decisions on these stocks, if you know that it, what, a decision that you make might influence whether or not the price of that stock goes up or down, that starts to influence, even if you don't want it to, and even if it isn't sort of consciously, it's hard to separate it out, and it creates a um, view to the public that can be problematic and suggest that decisions aren't being made necessarily in the public interest, but rather in personal interest. Um, I, 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 I don't mean to cut short this discussion, but I do want to get at least one other story in that deals with Georgia business right now. Um, Adrian... Um, we learned uh, late last week that uh, Coke Industries, which we but need to point out, uh, owns Georgia Pacific, um, one of the largest businesses in the state of Georgia, um, announced that they are not going to follow the 400 other or so American companies that have decided to stop doing business in Russia or suspend their business in Russia. They are going to continue to keep open their two glass manufacturing plants, um, Senate Democrats, U.S. Senate Democrats have been harshly critical of their decision to do that. Uh, they say, on the other hand, Koch says, look, we have Russian employees. We want to keep them uh, working. We want to be able to continue paying them. Um, what do you make of all that, Adrian? <laughs> I was first like, is this the Koch brothers? Koch brothers? Yes, it is, which is another who, um, reason, yes, which is right, which is another reason it becomes controversial. <laughs> have been extremely problematic in the American political system. Um, and so I guess sort of um, just as a first, when I'm first hearing this, um, I think it, it reminds me of sort of how atonal I feel like they are in the United States and their desire to control particular systems. Um, ideally, the political one as a whole, if they can pull it off. Um, I guess to some degree, I'm not surprised. Um, and I shake my head in the same kind of disappointment that I do when I read about the Koch brothers. Um, and Jim? <laughs> I, I think this this is just another little bit of evidence in, in, in the turmoil this has caused within the, the, the national GOP. Uh, because we for, for four years and plus, 
we had you know the the, the Trump storyline was that uh, was that uh, Vlad Vladimir Putin isn't such a bad guy. We've had worse. We can deal with him, and and we we need to develop a a partnership with him. Uh, it's it, it runs directly counter to the the traditional Republican uh, 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 suspicion of of uh, the bear, if you will. And uh, and the nuclear arms that it has. So it's it's a it's it's a it's it's a fascinating kind of a little 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 tidbit. It's not it's not important all that important in terms of of massive economic power. I think six hundred employees are involved. Maybe yeah. it's it's not it's not a massive operation, but it it is a statement. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's symbolic, if nothing else. Um, Amy, we, I've, we've said it before on the show, it's worth repeating again. Uh, but for the most part, Georgia Republicans who have marched lockstep with Donald Trump on many, many matters, including the fake elections, have stayed away from him uh, when he was essentially uh, suggesting that Putin was a genius for the way he was handling the invasion of Russia. Georgia Republicans are not going down that road with him, and, and that's worth noting. It definitely is. I mean, it's hard to say that it's a good plan to invade a neighboring sovereign country, um, and especially, you know, then say that your country should not be invaded. So I think that most of them have realized that that's a, that's a better way to stay away from. Um, and it again, I think that we're starting. I, it, the thing that will be interesting is whether or not this is a start to seeing cracks between the Republican Party and the hold that Trump has over uh, the decisions that are being made over the voters, because it is, a, I mean, again, it's a kind of a big thing to start to break with him on. And so we'll see if that continues or if it's an aberration. Okay. Um, Amy Steigerwald gets the last word on today's show. We're out of time. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Adrian Jones, Fred Smith, Jim Galloway, uh, thank you for your participation. Again, the um, Senate confirmation hearings uh, uh, for Katanji Brown-Jackson begin at 11 o'clock. You can hear them on GPB radio. You can watch them on gpb.org. Um, in the meantime, uh, we're done uh, for today. Oh, one other note. <clears throat> Wednesday, we're starting to work right now on the Political Rewind newsletter. It comes to your inbox every Wednesday. Subscribe. We'd love to have you uh, join us. Just go to gpb.org slash newsletters and you can get uh, on the uh, newsletter list that way. That's it. We're out of time for today's show. I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. See you all tomorrow.